Welcome back to the Start Well Podcast. I'm Kasim, as always, and this episode is our 37th episode. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in via YouTube or our digital magazine and enjoying us in clear, high definition, welcome to the studio. This is where we record all the podcasts, so feel free to look back on past episodes where you can watch a bunch of the recent ones anyway, as well in video. And for everyone on Spotify and uh, you know, iTunes and everywhere else. Uh, I hope that we sound nice and clear. All right, today I'm in studio with Amin Jadavji from Elevate Farms. The last episode around, if you guys caught it, was Ran Goel from Fresh City Farms. And uh, so this is becoming a kind of a theme. You know, urban farming becomes vertical farming. And we're going to talk about what that is. So Amin, welcome to the studio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course, man. I'm excited. You know, it's funny for for our, um, to fill people in. You know, we started. We were going to do this podcast a week ago, and we ended up talking in this very room with the mics off, and it was an awesome experience. Uh, and we just talked, and we talked, and we talked, and then we we did the same thing. I think today before I pressed record. So I hope uh, the rest of you enjoy the conversation that we're about to have because it's one that's already started. So I'm in. Introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name's Amin Chadavji. I'm uh, founder, CEO of uh, Elevate Farms. Uh, we're a vertical farming technology company uh, based here in Toronto. Um, let's back, let's take it back a little bit. Tell me about you as an entrepreneur, your experience becoming or otherwise always being an entrepreneur. What, what, what are you, what's your business kind of uh, bio data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I, um, interesting. I think it's all sort of, um, an evolution. So I, I started out, um, as a 20 something year old out of, uh, university, um, joining what was, uh, then a, uh, uh, fairly small family business manufacturing paper products. Okay. Um, and, uh, I don't think I was probably a little naive. I thought I had a couple years, get some work experience and, uh, um, you know, move on. Um, the reality is, um, we came up with a really good business plan and that was focus on high volume, low margin us. seems straightforward enough. Um, the implementation of that took about 20 years. Wow. So, uh, spent two decades, um, um, really just building out that, um, that strategy. How old was the company before you spent two decades there? Well, it, it that in itself is probably another really long story of you know entrepreneurial journey from you know, previous generations and and uh, you know immigrants into Canada from from East Africa. Um, but um, maybe to frame it, um, as we came in to the, the business, it was. Uh, Early 90s, um, we were in a recession. Free trade had just come in. So what that meant was, uh, for, for at least for the paper industry and for many other industries, that was uh, prices suddenly got 17.5% cheaper for mm-hmm. American imports, like literally overnight. Um, and uh, the company had about 18 employees. Um, and then over the next 20 years, we grew that to about 360 employees. Um, we went from leasing um, some space uh, back in the early 90s to owning our own portfolio of about a million square feet of owner-occupied manufacturing space. And that was spread out over uh, Ontario, Quebec, and uh, northern U- uh, New York. So um, a fair, you know, sizable U.S. operations as well. Wow. Um, that, at the time, put us at fourth largest in Canada. Um, but while that's, you know, Canada's relatively sizable uh, paper industry, um, that number's slightly exaggerated because the three above us were easily 10 times our size. Okay. And then the next closest competitor behind us was about a fifth or, or less than a fifth of our size. So we were in this sort of funny no man's land and it was kind of clear that um, uh, there's going to be an exit. Like it's capital intensive. Um, we did a pretty good job um, um, growing the business, but really like organic growth, you know, one customer at a time. Yeah. You get a customer, you buy a machine, you hire an employee, you sell out the product, 
you get another customer, you buy another machine. And it was really a 20 year grind of that. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, in many ways, um, um, uh, we, 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 we did exit the business. Uh, we sold to uh, the number one market share competitor. Is that Kruger? Kruger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's my friend's dad's company. Gene Kruger. Okay. I went to McGill with Gene. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Joseph, um, yeah, I, Great I, guy. I had, uh, uh, I had the pleasure of spending some time with Joseph, um, funny i i I didn't i didn't know that um um from uh but i have my tentacles yeah 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 so um um i think joseph and i in like an less than an hour crafted the whole deal but then it took and there were sort of um management consultants um financial consultants a legal team and 12 vice presidents that then took over (laughs) so this became an enormous you know but but it was almost like uh, i mean if we had a back of an envelope and a pencil yeah we 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 sketched everything out and then handed it off to like you know teams and teams of people to sort of implement this thing and i don't mean to say like we were this massive company but um kruger certainly uh was and is um but yeah, yeah, I, I, I still sort of share some emails back and forth with, uh, with, with Joseph. Um, um, really, really impressive guy. Um, yeah, it, it, it's funny. He, um, he would sort of start firing away questions. Yeah. And before you could answer the first, he was on the fourth. Yeah. So it's sort of like he's, you know, he's asking you questions. You're starting to answer. He's reading your mind. And jumping into the next thing, so you don't. I don't need to hear the rest of that. You know, the first word was good enough. You know, that that that, that, that sort of. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, sorry, I I, I digress. But um, no, yeah. it's 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 interesting, and it frames this kind of like um, again. You know, the, the thing I think I might have taken you off of it, but uh, before you exited, of course, you were talking about what was achieved in twenty years, and a lot of it that you've told me off the mic was uh, a lot of automation, and a lot of systems, and a lot of digitization. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- I think um, uh, what led to the uh, the exit to Kruger was um, I just uh, about an hour, hour and a half east of Toronto had just built um, a highly automated um, uh, manufacturing facility where, um, you know, we took sort of industry average labor costs, which at the time, you know, publicly traded companies was around 13%. Um, and uh, we got them down to five. Um, so, so that was... Um, somewhat impressive and i guess the we kind of knew that off the back of that it's going to be the number one or the number two guy one of those two guys would. but how you did it i mean from what you told me this is what would interested me when you explain kind of like the automation in the process and the fact that like right from am i right in in knowing or in, in in perceiving your business there as being um like is it is it still the old school thing you get lumber and the lumber gets stripped and processed and yeah, you know, so, pulped. So and... to put to put sort of a visualization on this, we 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 had uh, a paper mill, yeah, um, where we brought in raw materials and turned it into these massive rolls of paper, these sort of you know two thousand pound rolls of paper. Yeah, um, we were from the late nineties, one of the few companies that only did 100% recycled. So as opposed to... So you didn't have trucks with massive redwoods, not redwoods, that's illegal, other trees coming in your doors. Right, so we were buying recycled or or waste fiber from other people, which meant an inconsistent supply, and we were turning that into 100% recycled product, which then those massive rolls were then shipped to our uh, what we called converting, but you could say sort of processing. So we had three processing plants where we brought in massive rolls of paper and fin- you know, ran them through our machines and turned it into a finished product. Right. Um, I'd say easily late 90s, early 2000s, the market didn't really want recycled. Like mm-hmm. people would say, why, why would I have, you know, recycled paper when I could have, you know, 100% virgin? It would be nice and brighter white and softer and... Uh, who cares about, you know, the environmental impact? That that that's the truth. I mean, yeah. I think um, so. We were kind of, um, I'd say, from that standpoint, um, we did a really good job. If I could pat ourselves on the back, we did a really good job making high quality product from recycled fibers, and and that meant um, 
you know, adjusting our machinery, changing our emboss patterns to make things softer. Sure. Um, again, not to hide that it was recycled, but the market didn't associate recycled with premium or, or, or I mean, really, it kind of downplayed it. Like it said, well, we would rather pay more money and get a better product. I didn't really, yeah, this hits home in me just kind of going in my brain to 1992 when we moved to Kenya from Calgary. And, uh, and what was really funny was there was toilet paper, right? There was, there was very limited selection of the type of toilet paper you could buy in Kenya. There was imported toilet paper, funnily enough, and it would cost about $5 a roll. So some king, kings and kingmakers alike used it and felt comfortable every day. But for us, uh, plebs, we had to buy the cheap stuff. And the cheap stuff uh, was recycled, but it wasn't even on the package that it was recycled. Mm. It wasn't like, hey, we're saving the environment. It was more like, hey, this is our way of doing it because it's we got to work with what we have. Um, and right. unfortunately, there was tinfoil once in a while <laughs> in that toilet yeah, yeah. paper. Yeah, that's crazy. So I, in, our, like, in our sort of business, we were um, probably about 60 percent of our volume was in paper napkins and um what we found out after we got bought out was um we were uh when it came to paper napkins so this is like you know um napkins that would go into restaurants essentially right um obviously there was a little bit of retail but our volume in paper napkins was if you took the number two, number three, and number four competitors in Canada and doubled it, mm-hmm. we did more than all of them combined times two. Oh. So um, um, we just, going back to that like 20 years earlier, we sort of, we focused on the things that we thought there was an opportunity. And the, the truth is, I mean, we're you know, in our 20s looking at this business, right? So we focused on things that... Um, we thought would be an opportunity, but also, you know, everyone's sort of fighting for supermarket shelf space mm-hmm. um, and trying to get into Walmart or Loblaws. And um, so we thought, well, let's go into the food service segment, that, the wholesale supply. Um, let's build a brand in a segment that doesn't have a brand. Mm-hmm. Let's have you know, consistent quality, at, you know, sort of value. Like that's what we called ourselves a value supplier. Mm-hmm. Um and so really kind of understanding the consumer and then developing tech around that. So high volume, low margin, but really, um, you know, maintaining consistent supply, which meant, well, we need to get our own paper mill. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, so it was kind of a series of events, but that's the whole kind of 20-year journey. And so maybe with that, I'll, 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 I'll springboard into... Um, um, into the future. In, into, yeah, yeah, into the current, maybe. Um, so um, really thought that... Um, food um, supply chain risks around food um, are really important. So in our, uh, in, you know, in the paper business, if... Wait, let's put this story yeah. or juncture of, in the story on the calendar. So uh, when did Elevate Farms, you know, the birthing story is happening, but like when was this? Yeah, so so um, 90, sorry, uh, 2014. Okay. Uh, so 2014... Getting out of the paper business, uh, one of the things, um, sort of frustration in the business was, well, it's highly capital intensive. We were in this sort of funny spot of no man's land in terms of market cap or size. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there was always this phantom price. Uh, you know, some, some people in manufacturing call it the race to zero. Okay. Um, we always have to figure out how to make things cheaper, regardless of the fact that costs keep going up. Yes. So we've got, you know, extended health coverage in Canada, very expensive health uh, in the U.S., uh, unionized manufacturing plants at the paper mill, uh, you know, 401k and pension contributions we're making for employees. And anytime you went into a customer, you get this, hey, here's a copy of an invoice from China. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, right. but, you know. We're we, not. We, we're not in, in China. China. Yeah, yeah, And exactly. even the people in China are not in China. The perception of like, you yeah, know. Yeah, So, So that was really the, and, and this wasn't like the day we sold the business. This was the years and years leading up to it that there was always, I call the phantom price. Here is a price that we could buy product from China. Oh, maybe man. once, maybe once in a while, not consistently as we see right now with supply chain pressures. My China is WeWork. Yeah. 
but that's another story. Yeah, well, you, you know, even something as simple as the, the freight cost. You know, you, a, a, a container of paper products might have been ten or twelve thousand dollars. The freight was three, but at certain times of the year, it's nine. Mm-hmm. Well, today it probably is even more than that. Mm-hmm. So, um, that 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 that's where I call it the phantom price. Yeah. But we had to kind of meet that phantom price. And one of the things, so our customers, not the, the, the buyers that I was dealing with, but our customers were primarily food service distributors. So these are people who are moving a tremendous volume of food. Mm-hmm. I mean, in reality, our U.S. food service customers buy more food than Canada. I don't mean than yeah, Loblaws. I a mean, single company I mean, would distribute our, the whole country's worth of food. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 because con- the population of America is how many? Six hundred million? Something like that? More? Uh, three three hundred oh, and change. But um, so uh, you know, maybe a little little sidebar, uh, which does relate to both the paper and and the and uh, uh, the farming. But um, pre-COVID, because we have good numbers, fifty-four percent of all food consumed in America went through food service. So if you think about, you know, 100 percent wow. of your food takeout culture, you know, fast food culture. Exactly, exactly. So fifty four percent, a little more than half of all food consumed in America pre COVID, wow. was through, you know, restaurants, hotels, airports, shopping malls, um, and the balance forty six was not just grocery. It was you know grocery, meal delivery kits, catering, you know, all sorts of other things. Yeah. Um, so what's kind of Unknown. I, I mean, there's there's three food service distributors that control the majority of that 54 hmm. percent, um, and luckily for us, all three of those major guys were ex customers of mine. Yeah, so they're feeding 50 million people each. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so uh, um, just massive, massive volumes. You know, huge organization, and um, um, in Food. Uh, I, I'm going back. To, I'm going to fresh produce for a moment. Uh, I mean, food is obviously so broad, um, but um, with fresh produce, it's essentially a, a, a just in time. Um, right. You, know, you you can like we often get the question like well, vertical farming seems to be tackling leafy greens and why leafy greens and everyone may have different reasons, but one of the predominant reasons is. Um, you know, you can take apples and stockpile them for a year. Potatoes, onions, same thing. You can take tomatoes, you can jar them, you can freeze them, you can can them, you can process them. Um, but with leafy greens, you can't stockpile them. They have a 14-day shelf life. Right. They're all farmed throughout the year, not local harvest. But once you get past the local harvest, which is a very short part of the year, um, the majority of the year, it's all farmed in the southwest of the U.S., or Mexico or further south. Yeah. So you're talking 5,000 kilometers of transportation, uh, which equates to roughly five days. So you have a you have a product that has a 14-day shelf life with five days in transport, and without exaggeration, there's not a single restaurant in North America that doesn't serve salad. Mm-hmm. I mean, even McDonald's makes more money on their salads than they do on their burgers. Yeah. And let's face it, we all talk about Ergo robust lettuces that have no nutritional value in the post fifties coming to light as the only choice. Like when I was growing up, we only had iceberg lettuce, man. Yeah, yeah. That's not even lettuce. Yeah, uh, I mean it's crunchy and crisp, and it keeps better than other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I mean it, it serves a purpose. You know, it gives you a little right. crunch in your uh, your hamburger. It's refreshing and keeps your bun from getting soggy. No one wants soggy buns. Right. Exactly. Um, so, so, I mean, that, that, that really was kind of setting the, 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 the standard. Um, you know, if we missed a delivery in paper, you'd have a pissed off customer. They may drop us, but the truth is they'll just fill us our, our, our lack of supply. They'll just fill in with someone else. Um, but, but here it was a little more critical. Like you couldn't easily substitute restaurants don't want to run out of product um, and, and you've got this very fragile supply chain. It's funny, this, the hypothesis for all of this sort of food, vertical farming, urban farming, the, the, the kind of the whole industry really predated obviously the pandemic. Um, 
but um, you know the the sort of two things that really stand out since the last uh, 20 months is uh, fragile supply chains. And to a certain extent, maybe lesser, but probably more relevant is food security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these were, the world wasn't talking about supply chains and food security two years ago. I mean, I might have been, but, you know. No, the assumption of kind of like fluidity, um, you know, cross-border on a global level uh, in 2019 was that uh, from at least from every perspective, from the B2B perspective and from the customers, you know, the, the high street perspective was that I want my avocados when I want them, you know, and they should be cheaper. And this, I don't care how much water goes into making them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, that's exactly it, right? That's the sort of... I mean, um, the borders stayed open. This is a really important point to, to talk about in the last couple of years is that, you know, despite a pandemic in the early days of the pandemic where the threat wasn't even calculated in terms of, or let's say qualified uh, to any high degree, uh, there was a lot of fear even in the scientific community about you know what the real rate of transmission could be. Like in the literally the first few weeks of this, uh, one of the the main things that was decided early on seemed to be politically that the borders would stay open for trade. Right. So, you know, I mean, yeah, it was, it was probably pretty likely that the the lettuce coming across the border wasn't going to kill anyone with COVID. But it's an interesting idea to posit that. If something more heinous, you know, was being transmitted, uh, and you had to shut the border, alas, the salads would no longer be a Canadian or eaten in Canada. Yeah, um, um, again, coming back to that sort of high-level concept of food security, um, there, you know, this week the U.S. announced that they were going to release 50 million barrels of oil from their uh, stores to help offset. Uh, gasoline prices leading up to you know u.s thanksgiving that sounds great oh um but there are no stores for food yeah so it it, it like i mean obviously grain suppliers have grain and you know um but, but fresh but, food but, yeah. but but yeah for well, fresh food you can't do it but it's not uh typically government run right it's, it's individual companies um maintaining their inventory levels for their best practices which is typically just in time the only reason they're storing grain is because they only harvest it at certain times of the year Mm -hmm. but they need it all year round Mm -hmm. it's not for any other you know socioeconomic reason of of food security um the the uh so yeah you're absolutely right that we closed the borders but then we kept it open for trade because that's survival um that, that that the flip side though to that is that all around the world we essentially chucked out foreign workers. Mm-hmm. So everything's shutting down, you're leaving. And and I hate to say it, but in every country, the farm workers were from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's it's sort of a, um, you, you know, uh, in in um, I'm generalizing, but in the U.S., it's Mexican. Yeah, of you course. Know, in, in the UK, it might be Romanian, but in Romania, it's somewhere else, from someone from somewhere it's else. It's an international phenomenon. So it's it's really, you know, um, Ontario apple pickers were coming from Jamaica. Interesting. Well, if we closed the border, we sent them all home. Yeah. When we had apple season and we were still in COVID and we had to bring people up from these different islands, um, we stuck them all like they, we used to in a little dormitory style, you know, cabin with a whole bunch of beds and they all got sick. I knew nothing of this story. This is fascinating. So, so, you know, one of the early headlines, um, through the, the first summer, uh, of COVID in the UK food uh, all around the world, food was rotting in the fields because there was no one to pick it. So mm-hmm. in the UK, people volunteer to go work the fields and mm-hmm. pick tomatoes or carrots or whatever it was that was in season. And this happened obviously for months and months. Um, but that's because you know people were home and food was rotting and there were no workers. Yeah, we all relied on someone else to do that work for us. Um, I don't think anyone wanted to see a pandemic come, but I think the idea of food security—you know—I've been sort of talking about this for a little while with prospective you know, ex-customers of mine, and the truth is, they say, "Oh yeah, vertical farming sounds great, but what's the price?" Mm-hmm. You know, it all came back down to just like being in the paper business. Exactly. It was around price. The good thing here is that the price was no longer the cheapest 
price at the cheapest time of the year, that phantom price, yeah. um, the customers or the buyers were savvy enough to understand that there was so much price volatility on fresh produce from summer to winter, from spring to fall, that it it no longer became make, you know, can you make product at the cheapest price? It was, can you make product at the average price? Exactly. Because then we can have a stable price yeah. instead of one that fluctuates quarterly. And that's, that's, that's the honest truth with, with the volatility in the market. So, um, we at sort of El- at Elevate Farms, we kind of came together with, and this in itself could be a, a, a massive story uh, um, to get into detail about how we evolved as, as Elevate Farm from a sort of a technology perspective. But um, we kind of had that same focus that I'd say we had at Metro Paper, and that was high volume, low margin. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we figure out how to grow really good food at competitive costs? Right, because so, when we first met, and you told me about this, that was still like what was that a year ago? Oh, two years more, ago? two, three, almost. Yeah, yeah, that was the 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 story you told me was yeah. that you wanted to ha- be able to provide millions and millions and millions of heads of lettuce, you know, kind of quickly, affordably, uh, and everywhere. Yeah, and that that's very much the focus of what we're trying to do. Okay. So we weren't trying to figure out can we grow this stuff. I mean, it is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can comment on that. But the actual um, product, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But um, really, the idea was: how do we use our know-how and develop technology, um, minimize electricity costs and automation, and kind of leveraging on all of these sort of two decades of experience that mm-hmm. that, that 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 I and, and the other people on our team have had? How do we use all that to figure out how to do this at mass scale? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really. That, that the focus that we were trying to get across. So um, as much as I'd like to say, oh, it's a great product and it should be worth three times the market price, we're really trying to tackle, can we actually feed people cost competitively? Uh, and then, of course, then along comes COVID yeah. and the whole world gets turned upside down and everyone all of a sudden is concerned. Um, maybe concerned, um, I'm saying loosely, we're all concerned about food security. We're still not doing a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that, that, that really was the evolution from paper to um, to uh, vertical farmed or you know locally farmed leafy greens. Okay, so definitely yes. I'll while it's fresh, you know, I will talk about the quality of the product that I've tasted. Right. So a week ago, you gave me two bags of some delicious lettuces to take home. There was a kale, a red kale. Yeah. There was an arugula, uh, and there was a what lettuce was that? It was a napa cabbage. Napa cabbage. Yeah. Delicious. Like this was the first thing that came to mind, right? Was the um, depth of flavor. So obviously texture, it's wonderful. And and you don't need to like wash it, unless I didn't follow the instructions. But you don't wash it as if it's covered in dirt because it's not covered in dirt. It hasn't, you know, rolled around in the back of, of the truck on the way from to the farmer's market. Um, so really easy to handle produce, let's say that was bursting in flavor with fantastic texture because it was so fresh. It was still growing. I mean, the roots were in a little ball of, of dirt when you gave it to me. So I think, and this is obviously, this is not, you're not unique in, in providing a kind of a fresh uh, plant to the consumer, right? We do that like Fiesta Farms is my local grocer and shout out to Fiesta Farms, like Toronto's largest, perhaps remaining independent grocer. Maybe. I think. Um, they have a lot of organic, a lot of local, a lot of fresh stuff. And yeah, you could buy like a basil plant that's still living. However, however, those are mostly seemingly genetically modified plants that I buy. It's supposed to be organic and fresh and beautiful. But uh, someone owns a trademark to their genes and uh, they're always exactly the same. I like the variety of flavor in what you gave me. It was delicious. Literally the most delicious arugula ever that I think could be like open up I think your produce could open up a whole world just on this like nutrition density flavor density question a whole new world uh talking about retail experience for like you know fiends of uh fans of juice of the the epic capital J juice that everyone drinks for $500 a glass yeah 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 so you know um the the sort of um research and development work at uh, the basis of what the, the, the technology is built around was really advanced photobiology. Um, 
our group was heavily involved in the food for space research. So the precursor to the Mars space mission, um, before we talk about going to space, we had to figure out, can we actually grow food in space? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I won't bore you with all the, 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 the details, but, um, we had a, like from early on, we had a very deep understanding of how plants react to their environmental conditions, including not just light, but colors of light, quality mm-hmm. of light, yeah. quantity of light. And, um, the, the the sort of one of the things that fascinated me the most about the research was that the color of light actually has the biggest impact on growth. So not the nutrient, you know, when we talk about like plants needing soil, obviously they do, and they pull nutrients from the soil. You add additional nutrients and fertilizers and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But what we found was um, changing those had a small impact on the outcome. If we change color of light, we could change the nutrient outcome of the plant by greater than 100%. Hmm. So we could use one color of light and make a plant more than 100% larger, or we could use a different color of light and make the plant more than 100% higher nutrients. So I, you can't create a nutrient that didn't exist, but we, that I guess if, if we make it sort of put simply... Um, uh, you mentioned GMO. This is not about GMO. It's literally, we take a seed, we put that seed in a research chamber, and we start to grow that seed using all kinds of different environmental variables, temperature, moisture, amount of CO2, you know, blue light, yellow light, green light, mm-hmm. you know, far red, UV, whatever it is, color of light and quantity of light. We start to change all of these things. And in real time, in a sealed box, we can understand how that seed is reacting to the changes in the environmental conditions. And what we essentially do is create an algorithm. We create kind of a recipe of what's the optimum way of growing this particular product. So when we did that for arugula, Mm -hmm. what we came up with was... I mean, we're essentially trying to create the optimum natural environment for that seed. Right. And it would be unique from seed to seed. So um, when we first did this with arugula, it was so powerful, peppery, that like literally your face turns red. You feel like you just bit into a wasabi plant. I mean, not that there's like wasabi's not grown in a plant, but that was sort of yeah, the, it was like a the, radish the or horseradish or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, wow. it's, but in a leafy green, right? Um, um I, I think somewhere there's a, a, a video um, that was put out of uh, Sassur Lee, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. Toronto chef uh, with the ponytail. Yeah. And he's sort of going around the kitchen, getting everyone in the kitchen, in his, one of his restaurant kitchens, to try the arugula. He's like, you got to try this, you got to try this, you got to try And he's just going around, and everyone's like, oh my God, you know. Yeah. Uh, now what you tasted was, um, I, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but we've really had to tone down the flavor. It's like 20% susser level? Um, am, I, am I 10% Iron Chef palate? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think you said that um, your, 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 the comment you had, you, you'd served this to some people and they said, this is great, but not on its own. Yeah, because so we I, were making fresh pizzas, right? Like, that's my thing. I'm right. making, you know, dough from scratch and we're, we're making them on the barbecue. And, uh, and they were afraid of having that much flavor on their pizza. Yeah, yeah. So, so... Um, yeah, it's interesting. So percentage wise, I'd say definitely less than half of the potency that it would have been. Um, and, and so our, our kind of, the model here is we take a seed, we put it in the research chamber. These are the research chambers that we're using for space research in you know, previous years. And we understand how that seed reacts to its environment, create a recipe, and then plug in that recipe into a large-scale production facility. And that's a computed process, right? Yes. Um, it, it, to a certain extent, flavor is, um, well, not to a certain extent, flavor is is completely subjective. And being sort of research-driven, we have to have kind of a finite outcome. So what we tried to do is um, minimize... We, we, we set the target as what you would normally find in conventional product mm-hmm. in terms of size. So the target is 
the target for that product, we call that 1.0. Mm-hmm. We want to get to 1.0 using as little resources as possible. Resources are typically electricity. So as we start to adjust colors of light, we find that, oh, you know, on this plant, if we increase the blue from 18% to 24%, it grows slightly faster. We can get to that same point a day earlier. Mm -hmm. Or it's growing so fast but we don't want to get there quicker because it, it affects the, the, the maturity of the plant. So we actually turn down the dimmer switch. So it's a combination of the amount of power you consume and the number of days you consume it over. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're creating the, the outcome is how to do this cost effectively. Mm-hmm. The sidebar is that the nutrients are higher than standard. So we're not maximizing for nutrients, although I'd love to. Uh, because then what happens is as you change nutrients, you change flavors, mm-hmm. and then it starts to become subjective, and we have all these other issues, and we're trying to convince someone that this is good, which yeah. I believe it is. But instead, the approach we're taking to get huh. to mass market is, let's match what's out there, but let's figure out how to do this at the lowest possible cost. Sure. And so the full-scale sort of production is uh, roughly a 5,000-square-foot box. That's your modular unit. Yeah. So it's kind of like thinking of a container, but but much larger than a container. Yeah. So if you could picture a 5,000 square foot box, roughly 200 feet long uh, by 25 feet wide, rough dimensions. And that box is fed by a conveyor that comes in to one end mm-hmm. and a conveyor that goes out at the other end. So everything goes in at one end, travels through this approximately 200 foot long box and comes out by conveyor at the far end. In this 5,000 square foot room, we produce, you know, give or take, depending on the product, but nice round number, about a million pounds a year of food. Uh, Let's put this in context. I know this isn't like apples to apples, but like how much food does your average person consume? Do you know? Um, With leafy greens, I think it's something like uh, 25 kilos per year. And you said you produce how much in yeah, what yeah, period? Yeah. So you know what, I, I, I'd, I'd have to come back to you with the specific I I, numbers. But in terms yeah. of sort of scale, um, this is like taking 50, 50 acres of outdoor land right. and putting it into about a ninth of an acre. Yeah. So um, something like 99% less land than an outdoor field. But what gets really amazing is the measurement, the unit of measure for watering a farmer's field is, is literally, um, and I, I had to double take when I first heard this, yeah. it's, the unit of measure is called an acre foot. I thought, well, what do you mean an acre foot? And it is literally an acre, 12 inches tall. So imagine flooding an acre of a field, 12 inches tall, yeah. and that is one unit of acre feet. Okay. So farmer's fields use multiple acre feet times you know 50 acres yeah it's a volumetric kind of measurement because it's kind of like the yeah. parlance would be like you know how often you're watering your field because you have to water it equally and yeah. with enough exactly. like a, a foot's worth of water is going to go down into the ground that's right, right. and yeah. then you do that multiple times through the growth cycle yeah so just enormous amounts of of, of water and land resources size all of that stuff and then of course the five thousand kilometers of transportation that i was talking about right. and Right. The, the the migrant workers and the borders and all these other things. Yeah, farming's but, but, extremely intensive. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if I wanted to exaggerate the numbers, there are things that we grow where our 5,000 square feet is equal to about 100 acres of land. Mm-hmm. But kind of the average is around 50 to 60 acres. Um, and so our water saving. So you're taking 50 acres of land and you're putting it into about one-ninth of an acre. So that's that's pretty massive. Yeah, that but, alone is massive. Yeah, and then you you add the water savings to that, and it's it's around thirty to forty million liters of water that we are saving in a year. A year, so we can grow a million. I can't even. That number doesn't even mean anything to me. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's so big. It's, exactly. So, um, it makes it, me want to go to the washroom. I need to go pee now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Break. <laughs> um, so, so. In you know five thousand square feet, 
in terms of industrial manufacturing, I'm going back to the paper business, sure. we had a million square feet of owner-occupied space. Well, 5,000 square feet is not a lot of space. That's mm-hmm. our gross space. So just you know, just to be clear, there is other, like you, you've got tanks and screens. and That's like office packaging. space, just to frame this for yeah. our listeners, our audience. That's like 5,000 square feet would be a furnished office space for 50 to 100 people, depending on the metric of how dense it is and how the use case is. Yeah, or like a basement in a bridal path house. Yeah, Drake's basement. Yeah, exactly. So 5,000 square feet as industrial manufacturing, not a lot of space, but in 5,000 square feet, we grow a million pounds a year. And that's conveyor in, conveyor out, um, which means we have not a single human that has a physical job inside our grow system. Obviously, this farm needs people. Yeah. But, and- but when you talk about food security... This is all done to the level of like NASA safety protocols with a bunch of ex-NASA um, researchers and, yeah. working on this. Right. Um, but the only human job that happens inside our grow room is someone going in for a daily check. You know, everything is sensors and cameras and software and a huge, I mean, just a tremendous amount of data, data collection. But it's all off the back of scientific research, which was all from the precursor to the Mars space mission. See, it's so funny because I think about 10, 20 years ago, the rhetoric or let's just say the, um, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of like the end consumer perspective from my angle on vertical farming and automated farming seemed to be a kind of, um, you know, futurism. It was about kind of like this is this is a dystopian future. And the hope was to feed the, you know, um, malnourished, uh, underserved populations of the emerging markets. And that seemed to be the North American take on this was like, great, this is awesome technology that's going to save the uh, the starving people of Africa. And uh, the Gobi Desert can now be, you know, can flourish again. But, um, but I think things have changed a lot, right? You're talking about food scarcity and uh, realizations of the pandemic hitting hard. Also, of course we have this question of like what we like. So North Americans don't like thinking of what we need. You know, we always think about what we want. And what I find fascinating, of course, in the pandemic has been that diverse selection of produce that has continued to be imported somehow magically. Um, Very seldom have I not seen my dragon fruit kicking around. No, it's just like I don't eat dragon fruit, but that was just like a random example. Blueberries, you know, they're coming from South America. Right. Raspberries from... Again, air freighted in. Yeah, so some suppliers have been swapped in and out in different regions, but the product has made its way here, and um, it's fascinating. But anyway, so my point is the production means is not um, simply for a single use case. You could send these to the UAE where, you know, toilet water is, is costs probably, each flush probably costs five bucks to flush a toilet in Dubai. Yeah, I mean, they're relying heavily on desalination, right? Yeah, which um, is super expensive. So so uh, if you can go back to visualizing that 5,000 square foot box, we've got um, layers and layers of plants stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, the plants are obviously fed water-based uh, nutrients. But um, you know, what would this be like? Grade 7 biology, the plants have a stomata and they put out moisture. Mm-hmm. So... Um, to keep the plants healthy, we've got to figure out how to deal with that moisture. So we're extracting moisture from the room and we run that through our system and we essentially separate it into two things. We create almost... They, dist- drink, they drink their pee. Well, yeah, no, no, but it's, it's almost <laughs> distill equivalent water. Yeah. So yeah. We're, 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 we're taking moisture out of the air. We're splitting it into pure air and pure water. And so out of this 5,000 square feet, we, we're pulling around two thousand liters a day of excess of water out of the air we take that moisture out of the air we create pure water from it we add our organic nutrients and we pump that back into the plants in a closed loop system right so we're literally first of all you mentioned um the product that you brought home you didn't have to wash your tap water at home which is toronto has very good tap water um but you know you've got uh, fluoride and chlorine and things in the water to keep you and the water supply healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
these plants are grown in pure water, like absolutely pure. Yeah, and, and there's no risk of E. coli poisoning. Um, we have a lot of safety measures in place. To, but there's no to, like, to, there's no pigs pooing in the plants and stuff. Well, here. I mean, we're getting to the point with conveyor in, conveyor out that you don't even have humans right. inside the room. Right. So, so everything. I mean, we're 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 kind of expanding our business and building scale. And as we build scale, you'll see higher degree of automation. And again, this these are things that I've sort of spent 20 years on and building sort of automation. So yeah. we're leveraging on existing you know, conveyors. We didn't invent conveyors. We're not trying to invent conveyors, but we're integrating conveyors into our solution. Um, but we're essentially eliminating that human intervention or, or drastically minimizing it, which um, drastically reduces your chances of contamination. So when you look at sort of HAZIP is identifying hazards, and we're so low on the potential list of hazards um, because there's very few touch points. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, um, the the you know, two thousand liters of water coming out of the air mm-hmm. then goes back into the plants. And and then you, if you can sort of visualize, well, you can't visualize that because it's just it, it's you know it's moisture that's being pulled. Um, but you can picture the acre feet. So what we do in 5,000 square feet, recollecting the moisture, is kind of like we're, we're being the clouds. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, we're also, we're, like we're, you know, we're the rain and we're the clouds and yeah. we're, we're but, but out in the field, that 12 inches of water that goes, you know, the acre foot that goes into the field, um, exactly as you described, it starts to go into the soil and you water it again. Mm-hmm. A lot of that water just starts to evaporate as it hits the ground. Right. Or it so, sinks into the water table, depending on the soil and right. the elevation and the angle of the it, land. And exactly. All. So, I mean, there's a lot of technology trying to improve that. I'm not trying to exaggerate or But or it's deny, still... But it's it, a, but it, yeah. So, in our case, we're, it's almost like we're growing plants in a, in a baking cup. Right. You know, um, you can have a tray with a lot of really small um, holes for your, your muffin batter. And mm-hmm. so, in one tray, you might be able to make 24 really small muffins or six really big muffins. And that's the same sort of thing. We have these proprietary trays and we either grow a lot of really small plants or a few really big plants in the same amount of space. But we're only watering that little spot. Yeah. Just like you're putting in your you batter. manage your inputs and it's a self-sustaining ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. So all obviously uh, lots of safety protocols, um, automatic, you know, feeding and, and monitoring and, 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 um, uh, screens and filters and all the rest. But, but yeah, it's, um, it's really, everything's really focused on how do we feed the masses? Um, okay. So this is not a boutique business in the sense that this is not a business that, you know, you could create, uh, let's say the micro farms cost sustainably to put into a neighborhood to replace an urban farm or feed someone a supply of food that otherwise would come from across the world in just their local shop. Yeah. So I'm going to advocate maybe for the industry saying, I think the industry absolutely can help fill that void. Right. You know, um, there are, uh, people in the U S who sell container farms mm-hmm. and they're sort of like, they're pitching it as though, uh, you know, be your own boss. Like you live, you know, the, the, sure. the, the sort of target demographic is someone who lives in, let's say rural America who has a bunch of land. You buy this container, you stick it in on your property, you connect a garden hose and an electrical power outlet, and you start growing your own food. And, uh, you know, every Saturday, Sunday, go down to the local neighborhood farmer's market and sell your stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the sort of, you know, that's one level of it. And even the more micro level of it, of course, is just for fun, but it's, uh, yeah, no, no, it's for, like grow your own weed plant here in Canada. There's all these startups. I think one of them used to be our member company here that had this like, you know, hydroponic weed system for condos. And it was like, you're allowed one plant legally in each home. So grow your own. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you could put some rosemary in there too. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. It might not make as much money, but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah no, no. There's at every level, um, there's a bunch of companies that are sort of countertop, uh, um, refrigerator, sort of small refrigerator size. Um, you could buy 
kits to put in your garage or your basement or your bedroom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a container farm is sort of the smallest level of commercial operation where it's it becomes a business that you run, whether, you know, it sort of grows on its own. It doesn't really, but then you spend the weekend selling. Right. Um, our, our focus, uh, like I said, I have, I'm, you know, an advocate for the industry, we can absolutely fill that, that, that niche that you talked about, but, but Elevate Farm specifically is really going after mass market. Like we see the Walmart stores, but we don't see the Walmart distribution center that then supplies a bunch of stores in the area. Right. Same thing with Amazon. Uh, they have no, I mean, slight exception, but they don't really have physical stores. You're buying stuff online, mm-hmm. then it gets to you. So there's there's this whole back-end distribution logistics supply chain that none of us see mm-hmm. um where all of these fresh products are already in distribution somewhere yeah. you know whether it's walmart or loblaws or amazon or uh you know gordon food service they all have these products in their distribution network mm-hmm. uh through their their various um uh you know internal uh warehouses we are almost at a point where we can grow this in the space that someone is storing it. Wow. So um, all of these warehouses have, you know, walk-in freezers for meat and they have refrigerated storage for fresh produce. And then they have, you know, dry goods that are at a different temperature. And that's in these, you know, half and 500,000 square foot uh, distribution logistics centers. Um, The portion of that warehouse in the supply chain of a particular distributor that already has our product, we are at almost the point where with our footprint, we can grow it in that space. Mm -hmm. And that I think is very telling because we're not talking about creating new distribution. Like we, we, we've, we've obviously got a lot of work to do to kind of get to that scale. Sure. But, but really the idea is that this could go inside the warehouse of a next day shipper and tie into their existing supply chain to give you fresh farm product. But really not to, I mean, maybe we should be really disruptive and say, let's figure out how to get this right to your door. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's figure out how to tie into existing distribution and give people local high quality food production. Yeah, because the infrastructure for, and this is, I mean, part of our whole uh, angle on the lessons from the last couple of years and disruptions in the supply chain are probably going to come because of, you know, global factors. So if there's systems that work, if there's companies that are able to feed 50 million people through their logistics that they manage every single day, being disruptive for the sake of it because you're a startup is kind of disadvantageous. Here at Start, well, we see this all the time, right? It's one of my biggest cautions to people is to not overdevelop their solution to take on problems they don't need to solve. But I think you're on the money. I think this is exciting because if you have a modular footprint already in that storage facility um, and you're adding value with plugging Elevate Farms to replace a fridge with fresh production, wow. That is a revolution in itself. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, you could pick any intersection, downtown Toronto or you know even suburban. Um, look out the window at between five thirty and seven o'clock and count how many different food delivery bikes and electric scooters and cars are going by, yeah. crisscrossing each other, delivering you know a meal to you and a meal to your neighbor and a meal to someone else terribly inefficient yeah but that's what that's what we call disruptive technology today cuz it's all on individual platforms cuz everyone needs something you know, i heard a commercial on the radio on the way here mm-hmm. saying order at 11:01 and get your groceries delivered at 12:01 Oh, that's great. Like, do I really need to wait to the last second to get my groceries? Mm. Like, I, I mean, can I not think about it? Maybe a day yeah, in advance? If you know what you're going to cook, man. Yeah. You know? So, like, so I see the merit in that. It's and, not groceries. People are ordering peanut butter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> like, well, well, that's just it. Or, you know, if you order on Amazon, you order 12 things, you might get nine deliveries. Maybe they're ordering frozen food and they want it quicker so it doesn't melt. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Be so, it ice cream so or a I'm, pre-prepared meal. I'm very much kind of, you know, lowest hanging fruit. Um, I worked very closely with food service distribution for 20 years. Um, and they're looking after that delivery 
So why do we need to replicate trucks? Let's tie into that existing infrastructure. Because it's not about, like, someone is already paying to do that. Why mm-hmm. pay again to recreate that? Yeah. We want to plug in. That, 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 that's kind of our idea here. So very much it's kind of like plain vanilla, you know, white label solution. Let's figure out how to make really good quality food at competitive prices and tie into existing distribution. Put it simply, that's, that, that's it. That, that, that's all we're trying to do. Um, I believe we have superior product, higher nutrients, all those other things. Mm-hmm. But um, And it probably should be worth more money. But I think the first step is we want to build infrastructure and we want to get our products out there. I'd like to hear, I know that you've got experience working um, across Canada and into the U.S. and you're doing it again with uh, with this venture. You're going to be into the U.S., you were telling me a little bit. Um, what's your take on being a Canadian venture? Open-ended question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it it is and has always been incredibly challenging. Um, we, I mean, the U.S. market is obviously much larger, uh, a lot more opportunity. Um, but I think the lack of the level playing field is not in our access to the U.S. market. It's Canadians' lack of access to the right capital structure. Mm-hmm. U.S. banks lend money very differently. Um, they have a higher risk appetite um, for what. If you know our loans are sort of Canadian debt is sort of structured around um, the the lowest risk is your house, and everything above that is a lot of risk. Right. So you can either get three percent money, and I'm slightly exaggerating, or you can get twelve percent money, and. 12 with principal and interest is not sustainable. So now you're only paying interest and that means you miss an interest payment and you lose your business. Mm -hmm. Um, And three only applies if you're blue chip and you've been in business for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we're not able to really compete on the capital funding structure. Uh, You know, we can go off on a tangent on VCs and this and But but, but, but fundamentally I think that's the, biggest challenge for Canadians entering the U.S. Well, is we, we've got access to the market. Yeah, We don't have access to the right capital structure. U.S. Right. companies don't even know what to do. I mean, an out-of-state check is a problem. A Canadian check, they don't even know how to cash it. Oh, so, we've been there. Yeah. So we are foreign. We are a foreign entity. We're, you know, NAFTA and all this stuff, and they, you know, they all appreciate doing business with Canadians, and we look the same, and we sound the same, and we listen to the same music. In fact, they're all listening to Canadian music and <laughs> Toronto artists, right? Anywhere in the world you go, you're going to hear someone on the radio from Toronto yeah. or the Toronto area. But um, we don't get access to capital the same way that they do in the U.S., which is kind of a handicap. Um, and so that is, that is difficult. I think the story here in Canada in the last few years anyway has been, like you alluded to, is primarily around this kind of like new venture finance where it's kind of like capped at $5 million of CapEx. Uh, There's more liquidity for that kind of stuff, especially if it's equity financing. But once you're off the ground, growth capital, working capital, businesses need funds constantly. It's not just about like, you know, we got a bunch of money as an input and now we're up and running. Yeah, we, we like, th- there are, I, I think this, you could probably find a lot more experts than me, but <laughs> we could go on for hours talking about um, uh, the, 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 all of the issues around uh, funding ventures and expansion in Canada. I mean, put really, really simply, um, um, it, we don't, give the right access for our businesses in Canada to scale. Um, we kind of look to private equity. We'll look after that. You know, traditional bank lending will look after that, but not until you have, you know, two year run rate with, uh, you know, audited financials and a contract. And I'm slightly exaggerating, but that's really no, how we it found sets the up, same right? thing. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, we, we don't, we don't do that. Um, and, and so, you know, here we are, we've kind of, we think we've proven this out. We can point to it and show it, and we want to go mass scale, and it's 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 challenging, and it's challenging with over twenty years experience in the U.S. market. Sure. So, like like how challenging is it, or how near impossible is it? You know, without that, um, 
again, I don't want to beat up on Canada or Canadians. I think we, we, the, we don't do a good job fostering. Um, how do I say this? It seems like Canada puts out one massive global scale business every decade. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's Shopify. Right mm-hmm. now, I mean, obviously, I mean, they're more valuable than RBC, which is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you probably have more insight, but I'd love to know more yeah, about their story. Ours, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'd love to know more about their story and the how did they get there? How did they? Uh, but right but, place, right time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, and, in the first, in the beginnings of it, it was right place, right time, and it snowballed. Yeah. Of course, access to capital through the dual listing on the public and, stock exchange helped that the liquidity helped growth. Yeah, yeah, and, and they. They're very unique in being able to, um, to have had that corporate will early enough to say, you know what, we're going to spend what we need to to hire smart people, mm-hmm. and we're going to kind of like throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. It's kind of like people don't necessarily have specific job descriptions at Shopify. They have opportunities. It's kind of like mm-hmm. you're smart. Figure out some cool stuff. Uh, we don't have outside of Shopify. We yeah. generally don't have that ethos at many companies. Definitely not publicly traded companies in Canada. So and and um, yeah, you could make fun of me because I carry a BlackBerry, but you know that 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 was another company, yeah. highly innovative, world like global Nortel uh, standard. Them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 that same sort of the way you describe that. Hire smart people. Figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, always be innovative. That, that again, that's probably a topic for uh, another conversation. But um, um, it it is really really challenging to build that sort of global level scale in Canada. Or, if uh, any of our audience is listening, interested in what you're doing, and want to engage Elevate Farms in any particular way, uh, you are here, and you've got a footprint in Niagara, right? Uh, we've got some partner farms, okay. so so um, um, yeah, we we have uh, a, a couple farms under a partner model, so slightly different business model um, here in the GTA uh, in, in Toronto. Can, can customers buy that produce? It, they they can, and you mentioned uh, that last week you had Fresh City Farms. Yeah, and uh, Fresh City Farms is distributing product from our partner farm in in Niagara, awesome. which goes under the brand Vision Greens. Okay, so so that's there. Uh, we have another sort of uh, uh, earlier, smaller partner farm uh, in the city that supplies a lot of the. Um, uh, local ho- local restaurants, the Oliver and Bonaccini Group. If you go into you know, Rosalinda, is uh, all vegan Mexican, and you'll see We the Roots plastered wow. all over their menu. So, um, yeah, we we've got we've got some some good uh, both retail, food service, you know, uh, home delivery uh, platforms that are also using uh, the We the Roots uh, program. Um, uh, Mama Earth, Mama okay. Earth Organics. Yeah. That's um, a old schooler one, right? Like they've been around a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I say twenty years, yeah. they've been longer. I remember that longer. brand. That was like one of the first like order a box of fresh veggies to your house, people. It was, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, um, twenty years ago, the choice was small, medium, or large. That mm-hmm. was it. Like you get what you get. Yeah, and whatever seasonal, you don't know. Yeah, yeah, which was great. I thought that was brilliant. Um, now I don't know how many thousands of products they have, and you can customize your basket just like you would with you know any other. A grocer, um, but they do try and keep it uh, a little more boutique niche offering. And uh, yeah, so We The Roots uh, product, uh, locally grown, uh, locally grown being um, right in the center of the city, just off the Don Valley Parkway, uh, Midtown Toronto um, is available through uh, Mama Earth. Um, yeah, there, there, there's our little plug. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, as the company grows, as you expand into foreign territories and... Uh and go on the journey of taking this uh, Canadian business globally. Um, I want to hear back. We're going to have you back in studio, and maybe we'll put you in the same room as Rand and whoever else talking about the future of kind of food security and, and issues of that, because I think that's its own kind of topic to talk about um, the not just impetus for chasing down solutions, but the even customer interest in products that can be produced when you have access to the farmers as opposed to ordering them through 10 middlemen from Venezuela. Yeah, no, no. I, th- I think, I think there's a lot of merit and a lot of, um, I think more appetite now than, 
pre-COVID. Sure. So um, not that there's a you know silver lining, but I think people are concerned about, uh, or more concerned about where their food comes from. And, you know, food miles um, was sort of a thing, but it wasn't kind of a mass market thing. Um, but, um, you know, when, the, when COVID first started, uh, what was in the headlines was, and you mentioned this with your first uh, uh, um, uh, settling in, in, in East Africa, you couldn't get toilet paper. Yeah. That <laughs> was the first thing that ran out was uh, so the supply funny. chain. I don't know how people's logic was. There's a pandemic. Let me go out there and stock up on toilet paper. Um, but whatever the logic is, that was one of the first things sort of in the headlines that, that we ran out of. And yeah. then it started with, uh, you know, food rotting in the fields and fields full of tomatoes in California and, and uh, lettuce in, in the UK and, and all kinds of other things because there weren't foreign workers and, uh, all kinds of other other uh, aspects of it, but yeah, yeah, this is um, I think front and center at the moment is food uh, food security um, is, is and yeah, relevant topic. Happy to be co- to come back at any time and uh, and continue the dialogue. Awesome, man! It was a pleasure. Excellent, thank you. Right on.